uh, well, we'll get started with this afternoon's presentation, Trusted Not Busted, Staying Compliant in a Lit Litigious Environment. So please join me in welcoming Michael, Michael Barnes to the stage. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Mike Barnes. I am a managing partner at DCBA Law and Policy in Washington, D.C., and uh, that's a law firm that provides healthcare-focused legal counsel to a number of clients in the uh, healthcare space. And uh, I want to let you know that I'll be speaking on my behalf today, not on behalf of any particular client. And I'll be drawing on uh, the experiences that I've had over the past year uh, looking at uh, criminal investigations, raids, uh, reading uh, up on what's happening uh, um, in criminal law, as well as looking at civil law all around um, prescribing controlled prescription medications, urine drug testing, uh, and then insurance recoupments also uh, related to uh, urine drug testing. So uh, I want to try to make this a little bit uh, more interactive than just my uh, standing and speaking for 50 uh, minutes, and I think uh, one of the best ways that I can try to customize the content today is to uh, know whether you were in the presentation that I gave with Bob Twillman uh, yesterday morning. Would you please raise your hand if you were in that breakfast presentation? Okay, so a decent amount of people. The content is going to be different, but I think you'll probably hear a number of the same themes that I tried to convey yesterday, because those are sort of the most important things that uh, I've identified that you know, I can share with you uh, based on my experience over the past uh, uh, year and you know, my entire career. Um, and I think that uh, the difference largely will be that this, uh, this uh, presentation is less focused on policy uh, and more focused on these legal matters. So we've got some specific learning objectives and I'll try to go through and make sure we have an opportunity uh, to get your input on some of the uh, topics that we have as questions to make sure that we can address all these items related to criminal enforcement, uh, looking at payer-related trends, and then also um, documenting medical necessity for prescribing, urine drug testing orders, or any other service that you're going to uh, provide and expect to get paid for or potentially have to defend your decision around. <clears throat> So we're going to be looking at uh, federal enforcement trends, a lot going on in uh, uh, the federal arena related to the Department of Justice, HHS, uh, some practice recommendations related to prescribing, more specifically focused toward controlled uh, medications, uh, opioid pain relievers. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about some of the experiences that we've had related to uh, treatment for opioid use disorder as well, using controlled uh, medications, ordering urine drug testing, recognizing that there's a lot going on in the field of urine drug testing. May I get an idea from you uh, as to uh, who is affiliated in some way or another with a laboratory? Okay, good. So we, I would say 10 to 15 people. Uh, uh, did, would you raise your hand if you are responsible for decision-making related to uh, choosing analytes and ordering urine drug testing? Okay, all right, good. Thank you for that. Um, we will have opportunity for discussion as well. I'll leave about uh, uh, 10 minutes uh, for that at the end. Uh, so if you have a question, uh, just please make a note of it, and I'll uh, do my best to leave time at the end, and we'll pass the microphone around so you can uh, ask your questions and have everybody else benefit from uh, hearing what you have to say. Uh, so looking at uh, the <clears throat> federal enforcement trends, we, we know from back in November 2017 that the federal government uh, has uh, set up a new field office covering K-12 
Kentucky, West Virginia, Tennessee areas, 90 federal agents back in 2017, November. And then following that in February 2018, there was a task force looking at uh, civil and criminal uh, methods of intervening in uh, what the DOJ is focusing on related to inappropriate opioid prescribing. And in the news release about that out of February 2018, we saw that there was a focus on pain management clinics, drug testing facilities, and then individual uh, prescribers as well. And um, the, the uh, unit that's been set up has also been now uh, uh, focused on data analytics. Uh, so the DOJ is uh, looking at raw prescribing numbers that it's able to access through commercially available databases. And combined with that, there was the announcement there were additional 12 dedicated U.S. attorneys and in addition to the 90 agents that were uh, announced in November 2017, 250 more investigators as of March 2018. So this is a massive infusion of resources at the Department of Justice looking at opioid-related activity, um, and specifically opioid prescribing, drawing from databases that, that you know, by their own admission, they're looking for outliers. So in the field of pain medicine, obviously, outliers are oftentimes the specialists, right? They're the ones who have the practices based on their specialty uh, that enables them to see some of the most complex cases, uh, the number of people who can't be seen by our primary care physicians and are referred to these specialists. And when you've got some of these more complex cases, that might include people who need higher doses. And so if you look at raw data, then you see high numbers of prescriptions, given that it's a specialty practice and not a primary care practice. And then you might see that there are higher dosage units than what be, would be sort of at the top of a bell curve. And, and therefore, some of the specialists are getting caught up in these GOJ actions. And I can speak from uh, having observed that the former president of the American Society of Addiction Medicine, who's a prescriber of buprenorphine treatment medications for opioid use disorder, he was raided this spring and the former president of the Tennessee Society of Addiction Medicine, also a prescriber of buprenorphine medications for the treatment of opioid use disorder, raided uh, just a couple of months ago. So these are leaders of their fields, right, in their uh, practice. They are specialty providers who've achieved national level distinction, and they're getting caught up in the DOJ's use of raw analytics and eagerness to be able to focus on opioid prescribing. You know, what the other branch of the federal government is saying out of the CDC and numbers that are coming out finally acknowledging that two-thirds of the problem related to overdoses are illicit substances that seems to have been lost on the law and order focused Department of Justice. So as I mentioned yesterday, one of the responses that uh, we've seen from a policy perspective is really to encourage that in order for law enforcement to be able to get involved in any sort of medical related investigation, there be a referral from a medical board. And that's something that was recommended a decade ago by the National Association of Attorneys General and the Federation of State Medical Boards. Uh, now, as a specific recommendation related to pain and opioid uh, prescribing, certainly could be applicable to the other uh, prescribing of controlled medications or, frankly, anything medical. I think we've got a long ways to go if we're going to see that that actually becomes uh, a you know, true policy or regulation or even law in the U.S. Uh, so then back in uh, May of this year, uh, Jeff Sessions, Attorney General, uh, exuberant speaking to the National Sheriff's Association. I mean, he was you know, pretty much giddy. Uh, we've got a link uh, in the slides, I believe, 
um, looking at how Jeff Sessions uh, at the National Sheriff's Association, it looks like we've got outdated slides, unfortunately, but I'm working off of the new ones. Um, I can send you a link if you're interested in seeing the video of Jeff Sessions gleefully claiming that the DOJ has uh, taken down 150 doctors since 2017. They've indicted 150 doctors. Can you imagine it? 150. That's how, you know, that's how he so gleefully explained that they've indicted these people. And again, you know, this goes to the indictments being very different from convictions. Granted, in some of these cases, you want to see these individuals indicted because they tarnish the field of people like you. So we're spending your Thursday afternoon here instead of out at the pool or back at home making a living, right? Spending time with your families. Uh, so, you know, certainly the people who are selling drugs for sex, right, uh, distributing steroids at the gym, you want them wrapped up in this. But the, the difficulty of using raw data and then these new investigators and new attorneys uh, in this particular field is that a lot of the nuance that could be provided by medical professionals through the licensing board is lost. Um, June 2018, DOJ announced charges against 601 defendants uh, looking at billing. Right, so they were looking at uh, billing related to government and private insurers, related to opioid prescribing and distribution. And uh, the top specialists, again, as I've mentioned, as part of this June 28 uh, announcement, you know, were uh, wrapped up into this very aggressive federal action related to the prescribing of controlled medications. Uh, there was a headline uh, a, a few months ago about the FBI and DEA raiding a local pain management company. Uh, no arrests, no indictments. And this is something that uh, we have seen for a number of years. I think it's uh, worsening. And uh, we've seen it also in the addiction space. Uh, so for example, there was a very aggressive search that was executed a couple of years ago against an, uh, a, a treatment provider of uh, addiction treatment out in California. And uh, the uh, search was based on the notion that there were violations of federal laws related to prescribing and providing services for people who are parts of federal health care programs. Well, the clinic didn't have any patients who were part of federal health care programs. Nonetheless, they went in, they raided, they bullied uh, the uh, staff members, they shut them down. There is now a lawsuit of this company that's pushing back against the uh, federal government but that's, you know, you've got to have a lot of resources, number one, to defend yourself and then to go back against uh, the, the U.S. government. Uh, and so it's not realistic for people who are in settings that are, you know, are not resourced to that particular level. But when the federal government is not making arrests, not making indictments, and just raiding people to look, uh, then it's you know, highly problematic. And you've got to take the actions to make sure that when somebody looks, whether that be a plaintiff's attorney who's claiming that you've committed some sort of uh, negligent act, uh, whether it be a, a criminal uh, uh, proceeding where someone's coming in and saying, we think you might have violated federal or state law, or if it's an insurance company that's saying, we paid you, or federal government that's saying, we paid you, and this wasn't medically necessary, you need to pay us back. And you know, this was from facts that are four years ago. You've got to have the records that will dictate that you were acting in accordance with the standard of care and to show that you had the, the, the conscious decision-making and the individualized focus on treatment that uh, qualified you to make that decision and get paid for it uh, and you know, to uh, be able to defend yourself appropriately. Um, so, 
the DOJ raids obviously are having an impact on good providers. They're having a good, uh, an impact on uh, patients as well, right? Collateral damage. As uh, my colleague uh, Bob Twelman of the Academy of Integrative Pain Management pointed out yesterday, there is new and emerging data showing that the overall reductions in prescriptions of opioids are hitting the wrong people. It's not necessarily reaching the target uh, population of people who are new to opioids for pain. Uh, is oftentimes uh, hitting the people who need opioids long-term for persistent uh, pain conditions. Uh, and obviously, that's something that you all uh, are here uh, to make sure that those people can uh, receive the treatment uh, that, that they need. And you're sort of the, the, you know, the, the, uh, the firm, strong survivors. Uh, and and you know, I want to make it clear that you have the admiration of myself and so many other uh, people who are uh, a part of this conference and you know, broader a part of the uh, pain community because of your commitment to helping these people. It would be easy to drop out. It's a lot harder to do the things that we're talking today about remaining compliant while still exercising compassion for people with pain. There is increasing media coverage, though, of the harms that are uh, falling upon people who have pain and are unable to access their treatments. And so I think that uh, that is something that is a bright spot and perhaps a turning point in addition to the types of data that are coming out and really undermining uh, these policies that were put in place more so to implement an agenda uh, rather than to implement good policy to help uh, Americans. So our recommendation in this particular environment uh, is to make sure that you have a very good compliance program, right? So you make certain that the things that you are learning here at Pain Week are implemented in your policies and your procedures and your training and then your monitoring of your staff members and that there is documentation of all of that so that in the event that you are wrapped up in what is this very uh, aggressive environment of, uh, at the very least, investigation, if not prosecution, that you will be able to defend successfully the work that you've been doing based on the knowledge that you have by being a, you know, a, um, an extremely well-educated practitioner uh, in your field. And so we... Um, certainly want to make sure that uh, as you're dealing with these particular issues, you recognize that you, what you're learning today from me is not legal advice that I can provide to you. You need to have your own confident, uh, competent, uh, experienced healthcare legal counsel. And, uh, you know, if, that, if you're in a small setting, uh, that doesn't necessarily have to be uh, outlandish or uh, outrageous, given that uh, a lot of this is just related to documenting and having a policy in place that you can then uh, you know, take a, a, a leadership role in implementing in your practice if you're the medical director or the owner or in the practice leader. Um, but for some of these you know, more complex questions, you should have uh, experienced legal counsel to help you uh, to develop your policies and include uh, in those policies references to the medical scientific literature that then can be utilized as the basis for your prescribing decisions so that in every single medical record entry that you make, as long as it's within the confines factually of those particular policies, you don't have to do the full analysis yet again about your decision. You put the facts into your medical record, and if it's in accordance with your policy, if you're ever called to account, you can say, look, these facts, as applied to this policy, make sense and enable us to move forward with this particular uh, plan for treatment. 
So then the training uh, is something that's uh, vital, of course, as well. If you are a medical director, if you're an owner, you want to make sure that the people who are working with you are also not causing problems with you. You need to make sure that they know what to do if there is somebody uh, who comes and says, we're here to inspect your practice. Um, and we've seen with uh, training for urine drug testing, even some of the best uh, experienced um, and educated professionals are you know, uh, in a position to learn what certain metabolites are and perhaps for the first time learn that they might have been seeing for quite some time metabolites that show that heroin use was present in a person's urine drug results and they didn't know that that was uh, correlated to, to the use of uh, heroin previously. So training is very valuable, not just for your support staff, but for your uh, healthcare care uh, professionals as well. And then document uh, all of this that you do on a daily basis, but also ha you know, with your written policies and your training, you'll have evidence of the fact that you have fulfilled your duty, right? Because if we look at negligence, you know, any sort of malpractice, that's based on your failure to adhere to your duty, right? You breached your duty. And these will be documentations that, that will show that you have uh, followed that duty. Um, another thing that uh, we recommend practically, thinking about what can happen and you know, how these task force work, is that you should make relationships with the people in your community who can um, convey confidence you, so, in you. So your law enforcement officials, like your sheriffs, if you are a, a pain care provider and you you might be caught up in investigations related to opioid prescribing. I think it is a very um, good uh, consideration for you to make, uh, to reach out to your sheriff and say, look, I know there's a lot going on, but you need to know that we're the ones who are doing things right. We want you to go after the ones who are selling drugs for sex or the ones who are giving uh, steroids out at the gyms. And then also, by the way, we can help you because we can treat those patients if uh, their provider is uh, shut down uh, and they have legitimate medical needs. Um, and same thing goes with reaching out to reporters, right? If you have a relationship with, report, with reporters, they can be helpful in the community in the event that there is some sort of uh, you know, investigation. Somebody comes in, you know, just like we've seen in some of these news stories, they're just looking, right? Well, that can have a major impact on your reputation, your goodwill, your ability to make a living. It can freak out your patients. Reporters can make a big difference in how that is conveyed as well. And, you know, frankly, that also goes to the uh, ability to look to what a potential jury pool would be in the medium to long term if it came to that. Uh, and then engage in policy and politics. You know, just uh, going back to the issue of policy, if you know that things in your community are going the wrong way and are making it difficult for you to provide treatment uh, in accordance with best practices, be the expert for your member of Congress to consult with when there's something pain-related or controlled medication-related that comes up before Congress. Uh, and then, you know, if, if uh, there's something that you feel like needs to be changed, you know, take a leadership role because you are the expert in that particular, in this particular field where your voice is much more uh, valid than a citizen legislator who might be a uh, furniture salesman and uh, doesn't have the expertise that you have based on your experience and education. So distinguish yourself as the responsible provider. Um, these, uh, I apologize, these uh, slides are uh, quite uh, old and different uh, from what I had updated, but um, another thing that you wanna bear in mind as you, um, uh, account for these changed circumstances is what to do if law enforcement or uh, more specifically the DEA comes knocking. Um, 
So uh, we know that uh, there are in the law specific limitations on the DEA under the Controlled Substances Act for each type of visit that they would make, right? So that they make an administrative inspection, that's under their authority as regulators. Like, you know, like the FDA is very good at regulating. The DEA hasn't really been good at regulating. They're really good at law enforcement. They're good aggressive cops, right? But they actually have administrative authorities that limit what they can do uh, uh, in an administrative inspection. So, for example, uh, if someone comes in uh, to your office and they have a request to be able to inspect your premises, you have the right to say, no, we're not ready for that. You know, our medical director's not present, or I've got a, a, a you know, backup of patients, and today's not a good day. We can reschedule. Uh, and they will have to leave and come back if they're operating under that request for the, uh, the right to inspect. They might come in with uh, an administrative inspection warrant, in which case you have to let them in. And in either of these uh, circumstances, if they're working on their inspection authority, they don't really have a, an opportunity to interrogate. Frankly, under, under the rules that apply to them, which many of them don't know, I will tell you that having been present for our DEA inspections, uh, they are really there to inspect documents. And so you're technically not required to answer questions that arise in the course of administrative inspection. Whether or not that's a good strategy, if you're thinking about trying to develop a uh, you know, positive relationship with the DEA, is something that you, you need to consider. And I think that experienced healthcare counsel can help you make that decision either in advance or if you uh, have somebody come and you say, no, I need you to come back in a couple of days. Let's schedule it when my attorney can be present. Those sorts of uh, um, uh, you know, determinations and considerations from a legal counsel can be helpful to you. And one of the things that you should know that uh, will occur if the DEA comes and you know, they're, they're out to uh, increase their numbers or they're out to you know, take the pills off the streets or out of the community and you know, they're being non-discerning about their approach uh, and you're getting wrapped into this, is that they'll try to get you to uh, uh, abandon, to uh, uh, give up your DEA registration. So they will request that uh, you surrender your registration, and they'll say, this will make it a lot easier on you. And I can say that uh, in my experience, uh, I haven't really been able to think about when that uh, would be uh, an action or a course of uh, direction that I would recommend to a controlled substance uh, prescriber registrant uh, in the U.S. Because even if you are, say, you're the, you're the guy who's selling steroids at the gym, uh, there's a benefit to using the surrender of your DEA registration as a part of negotiations or settlement or plea agreement. So even if you're the bad actor, I don't really see a benefit to taking the agent's uh, you know, oral promise that this will be easier on you as opposed to getting that promise you know, as part of a negotiation with uh, you know, the formal documentation in place uh, instead of giving up uh, that very valuable registration uh, out of fear. Uh, the uh, active investigation authority of the DEA is different. Uh, that goes to the authority of the DEA to uh, act on uh, a, a criminal uh, suspicion, evidence that there might be criminal activity. So they would be operating under a subpoena or a search warrant, which would be issued by a judge. So it's either a subpoena that uh, may come based on uh, the active investigation authority of the DEA or a search warrant. And that's where you need to, uh, when it comes, read it carefully, uh, immediately call your legal counsel, and then uh, 
you know, do what they've uh, asked uh, of you. Um, but that's, again, where the DEA might uh, ask that you voluntarily uh, surrender your uh, registration. Um, then in the, you know, the final uh, act uh, that could arise, and, and we've seen this more so on the distributor side rather on the than on the practitioner side, is there could be an immediate suspension order. And that is exclusively when there is an imminent danger to public health or safety. And uh, that has to go through the DEA administrator. So there is a process that they've got to go through. That's not you know, immediate. That can't be issued uh, immediately after uh, an inspection, for example. Um, and so uh, that uh, generally would be when you know, if that comes, you immediately comply, stop prescribing, and call your legal counsel as well. Uh, but uh, on, on a whole, uh, you should be aware that as a, a healthcare uh, provider who's registered with the uh, DEA, you have a right to due process before there can be a revocation of your DEA registration. Right? So they have to issue an order to show cause and provide you a hearing. And um, you know, generally, uh, we recommend that clients have some sort of uh, flow chart, uh, have some sort of training for staff so that the person at the desk knows what to do if this occurs, including what to do if uh, the medical director or the physician is not present. Um, so uh, given that there would be uh, pressure to surrender, you know, perhaps citing some minor violations in paperwork that they might have found, uh, you know, oh, I could have done a better job with my paperwork, should I surrender my uh, DEA registration? I think uh, you should bear in mind that reapplication to get that uh, is very difficult. Uh, it can result in a, a lot of delays if, you, if it even moves forward and there's no guarantee that uh, you would be successful at reapplying for a DEA registration. And then there wouldn't be any benefit in any subsequent negotiation despite uh, an oral promise from an agent. Um, uh, and so, uh, you know, again, I cannot think of a, a time when that uh, voluntary uh, surrender would make sense. There's also now, just recently in the news a couple of weeks ago, been uh, new use of the civil authority that falls under the Controlled Substances Act by the Department of Justice. And this appears to be very similar to the immediate suspension order in that, you know, there's this notion of immediate threat to the public health or safety. And so they want to get, a, the federal government wants to get a temporary restraining order or injunction. And uh, we're trying to figure out in my office and you know, among colleagues in the field, you know, what this is about, uh, because it is the first time that the civil authority to issue an injunction has been used. And I think it goes to the resourcing uh, that has been uh, significantly increased um, through the DOJ. So there are now more U.S. attorneys, more investigators available to help in the DOJ more broadly. We know that there's uh, traditionally been a backlog at the DEA for administrative uh, 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 processing of the, um, uh, the orders to show cause to revoke someone's or suspend someone's uh, registration. So this might be a way around going through the DEA bureaucracy and go through the DOJ uh, attorneys to the federal courts to get the same sort of uh, equivalent of uh, an immediate suspension order. Uh, so, um, you know, something else that I think uh, an experienced uh, healthcare provider, or, uh, uh, experienced attorney with healthcare experience uh, and practice um, expertise would be able to uh, help you with as you consider what to do in these various sorts of circumstances. So may I ask 
whether any of you in the audience have written uh, policies related to the prescribing of controlled medications in your practice. Would you raise your hand if you do? Okay. Uh, and, uh, sir, would you be uh, willing to tell me how those were developed? Okay, VA. Yes, VA has a very uh, thorough uh, approach uh, guideline to prescribing controlled medications. Uh, does anybody have written standards related to the ordering of urine drug testing? Would you raise your hand if so? All right. Uh, so, you, sir, how did you put that in place? Okay, but, but how did you determine that, that that would be your policy? So, you know, since uh, the guidelines came about, that's been my policy. Okay, so looking at guidelines from what, CDC? Sorry. Okay, and you, sir, in the back? Um, we reviewed the CDC, but I hired you to uh, help me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the plug. <laughs> All right, um, so. Uh, certainly, as you think about uh, putting together uh, uh, your compliance program, you want to have written policies to the extent that uh, you've got the resources to, uh, you know, to do that. And it, can be, it should be derived from medical scientific literature that you know, could include government guidelines, could include what you find in a journal article, uh, could uh, incorporate some information from, for example, the medication's prescribing label, uh, your minimum uh, effective dose, for example. Uh, and then, and generally speaking, the type of information that you learn uh, here in your training, and then you want to uh, make sure that uh, you're documenting your policies, training, uh, improving upon uh, your staff's performance, and documenting all that as well. So, um, has anyone here uh, been present for a, a DEA uh, in inspection uh, and been inspected by the DEA? Would you would you raise your hand? Okay, all right, so not a lot of people. Uh, that's interesting. And uh, uh, ma'am, uh, if you, say, in a, in a couple of weeks were to have uh, DEA come in with a search warrant, whom would you call? Uh, my okay, and uh, is your, does your attorney help you with like your business practice uh, matters? Uh, she does, okay. Uh, and she would probably need then, as I've, I've been in the case of having to do this, get on the phone and pretty much immediately find local counsel who could do white-collar white criminal uh, defense, right? So that's something that's you know, also easy to do in advance in this environment, is, you know, know whom to call if uh, this occurs, uh, and you know, have somebody who's going to be local and then poten potentially consult a, uh, with somebody who has more of a, a specialized experience, but you're dealing with two different practice areas, and you know, that related to the prescribing of controlled medications and all that goes into the things that you're learning and we're discussing today from a legal perspective, and then white-collar defense and how you go about defending uh, a, a person against the uh, DEA under the uh, CSA. So um, as, far, as far as the uh, uh, um, questions that we have as part of the learning objectives, I, I want to uh, ask whether you think uh, my particular statement is true or false. So I'll ask you to raise your hand if you, uh, right now if you believe it is true that the terms DEA inspection and investigation have the same legal meaning. Is that true? Is that false? Raise your hand if that's false. 
Okay, that is false. They are very different, uh, and you have got different rights in the course of those uh, um, types of settings, the, the types of um, uh, visits that the DEA would make. You know, one of the one of the basic aspects of that is technically there's not supposed to be any guns when there's an inspection. Literally, you know, if you look at rules that apply to the DEA, they should not show up with guns. You know, that's a big way to feel a lot more comfortable. Um, the, the investigation is obviously going to be much broader. The inspection should be narrower and limited to uh, documents. Uh, so you want to make sure that you have um, uh, a plan in place uh, related to uh, what to do in each of those scenarios and at least whom to call. All right. So I want to get into now related to uh, prescribing um, As you think about a policy to guide your prescribing of controlled medications, you want to, again, draw from those government recommendations, the FDA label, the uh, professional um, uh, guidelines, as well as your medical literature, so that you can apply the facts of your particular circumstances to that policy. If they fall within it, you're good. If they fall without it, then you, you do the analysis within your medical record as to why you're making the decision to prescribe in a way that's not consistent with your policy. That makes it a lot easier when the time comes for your expert witness, if necessary, to determine whether or not you're adherent to um, the, the standard of care. So literature should be used to back up your medical decision. If you're making uh, uh, what would be sort of a risky decision, but nonetheless know that you're confident because it's consistent with the unique needs of the individual, make sure that you can point to somewhere in the medical scientific literature that shows that you're basing this on you know, uh, something that is considered consistent with the ordinary course of professional conduct in medicine. Uh, the legal standards for uh, prescribing uh, controlled medications are that there's got to be a legitimate medical need, obviously. Uh, ordinary course of professional practice, meaning that you, you uh, act within the confines of what you find in the medical scientific literature and learn here or uh, pick up from the guidelines. You take steps to prevent harm. These steps need to be reasonable. They don't need to be all-encompassing, uh, comprehensive everything on every visit and document those. And if you follow these steps, based on the analysis that my colleagues and I did uh, of civil and criminal as well as state and federal case law, you'll be fine. Um, and uh, the, 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 you know, the key here is documenting that you have done this and remaining actively willing to verify the, the need, given that people change and that circumstances change, and be uh, vigilant that when you're prescribing any controlled medication that the good outweighs the bad and document that. So something as simple as how is this medication, how is this treatment regimen improving your life will do you great good in the event that you have to uh, address before a jury. Uh, why it is that you made a particular decision, medical license board included. Um, when you uh, are doing the reasonable steps to prevent harm, like, for example, looking at uh, the PMP database or doing urine drug testing, a crucial aspect of uh, remaining compliant and making sure that you uh, can defend yourself is actually responding to the results, right? So if you see something on the prescription drug monitoring program, you've got to do something about that, whether it be calling somebody else and getting more information from a different prescriber. Uh, it might mean that you kick a person up to a higher level of care or refer them to a different specialist. Our recommendations to our clients is, uh, in this environment especially, if you find somebody who's non-adherent in your practice and uh, you want to do something to protect yourself and the patient, kick the person up instead of kicking the person out, meaning more frequent visits. 
shorter prescription length for uh, perhaps uh, counseling if that would be something that would be uh, useful. Referral even to a methadone clinic if you know that the person has a dependence on um, um, uh, opioid medications. Uh, and so um, the general notion here is you don't want to relegate any, your patients at any point to the street where now they're uh, at risk of overdose from fentanyl-laden uh, street drugs. Uh, so the standard of care is determined in every particular uh, proceeding, and uh, it, it is identified effectively by the experts in that proceeding. You know that there will be an expert for the prosecution. You will uh, have an expert also uh, you know, in your defense if it ever comes to that. And so you want to make sure that um, you are... We're getting some static. that you were documenting any sort of deviation. Uh, I want to make sure that you're documenting any sort of deviation from uh, what would be a typical uh, course of treatment uh, so that your, your expert can explain you know, how that is uh, still consistent with what would be the standard of care for a unique, difficult case. All right, so getting into um, uh, actions related to urine drug testing, there's a lot going on both uh, with the federal government investigating uh, the charging of uh, urine drug testing uh, for individuals who are on opioids uh, to the federal government, uh, payment from uh, CMS, for example, and also in private insurance companies. Uh, so if you look in the news, you see that there have been uh, cases related to urine drug testing uh, um, and decisions that uh, before a particular uh, uh, treatment is provided, they will do urine drug testing in every single instance for every single um, uh, substance. And in this environment, as much as it would be ideal if that you could do that because you could benefit from that clinical information, you really can't as long as uh, you're expecting somebody to pay for that. And you also can't really give away free services uh, to any of these program beneficiaries. So you've got to find a way that you can uh, um, identify uh, the unique needs and make those decisions related to urine drug testing in each uh, particular uh, scenario. And so um, one of the things that you uh, absolutely should be doing in, in urine drug testing and staying up to date on the literature. Uh, literature is fast changing, more so on the addiction treatment side and how to do urine drug testing and addiction treatment. But if you look at the new literature that is out, it is applicable to pain care practice also because it's related to preventing, intervening, and treating problematic substance use, right? And that is a major aspect of what you're expected to do now if you are prescribing controlled medications. You're supposed to prevent harm associated with that. And so you can um, pull from some of the new literature related to urine drug testing. And we have, uh, uh, if the slides are available, um, the updated slides uh, have resources where you can find the newest uh, literature related to urine drug testing, incorporate that into your plan as well. The uh, uh, DOJ is uh, pulling together cases, looking at these things, uh, looking at healthcare fraud, wire fraud, conspiracy to fraud the U.S., kickbacks, money laundering. Uh, CMS is claiming that 95% of lab claims are not eligible for Medicare payment. In cases that we've looked at, and we've worked with prosecutors as well as uh, defense attorneys uh, and uh, criminal as well as civil matters related to urine drug testing, a lot of times uh, the plaintiff or the uh, prosecutor will try to uh, 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 put old standards on, uh, sorry, new standards on old facts 
Uh, that's something that, of course, uh, gives you all the more reason to stay up to date on what's happening and uh, to uh, be sure to adjust. Another thing to bear in mind is what is the market holding? Is there a way that I can get access now to urine drug testing services that are more comprehensive so I can do more uh, while also then um, uh, saving costs, right? So I know that there is significant deflation in the urine drug testing market that you should be aware of as a provider uh, to be able to perhaps provide you the sort of information that you ideally would like to have. Um, <clears throat> looking at uh, how the government is also addressing these healthcare fraud matters. They're looking at Medicare and Medicaid. So, for example, in one of the raids of the uh, specialists uh, in Tennessee, uh, we've been speculating as to what, they, what the federal government could actually be now focusing on. They're looking at whether or not the various providers in the practice were appropriately registered with Medicare and Medicaid as a non-participating provider, participating provider, or opted out provider. Uh, and so you've got to know whether you are or whether you're not, and how you're being billed at, right? And this goes to the individual, not the practice. So if you uh, are not really sure how your billing department bills your time, and you do you know, accept uh, patients, or see patients who are uh, Medicare participants or Medicaid participants, that's something that you individually should investigate and make sure that there is uh, congruity between where you are uh, in the federal government's records and how you're being billed out. <clears throat> Um, you want to make sure that uh, you know, if you, you're avoiding the, the obligation to pay refunds and penalties or being you know, the object of some sort of claim of conspiracy for something like that. Uh, so that includes, uh, you know, it, with Medicaid, if you are uh, treating Medicaid uh, patients at an emergency department and you are a participating uh, provider in that emergency department, if you see Medicaid patients uh, during a, a different job, say, a primary care or an addiction treatment setting, uh, then you would also be of the same status. So you can't have varying statuses in, in uh, two distinct practice areas as well. And that's an area where I think the federal government is now looking to try to identify something that is wrong. So I just want to – it can't go into the details today about uh, all these uh, complexities of Medicaid, Medicare, opting out, and how you process your payments, but these are things that you should be – aware of and start to look at as you consider your compliance. Um, back to urine drug testing, they're also uh, looking at kickbacks. Uh, so if there's ever any sort of arrangement whereby there's a processing fee or any sort of exchange of value between the urine drug testing lab and uh, your practice, you want to be very wary of that and you want to investigate to make sure that you're operating within the exceptions that are permissible under federal Stark law related to um, uh, uh, the um, physician ownership and self-referral, anti-kickback laws. And most state anti-kickback laws apply to the person who gives or gets also. Uh, so you want to make sure that, uh, again, if there's any sort of exchange of value that you have somebody who does that analysis for you that uh, will make certain that you are uh, compliant. Uh, so uh, as... I try to uh, wrap up and uh, move to question and answers. I want to make sure that uh, we also uh, look at um, 
on the urine drug testing, know your metabolites. Right? Uh, make sure that if you have a relationship with a lab director and you're trying to individualize urine drug testing, ask the lab director to make the form a little bit easier for you. That's something that's basic so that you can, on the form, make sure that you're documenting medical necessity appropriately. And bear in mind that it's the lab, ultimately, uh, for urine drug testing that is going to have to be uh, held to account for the medical necessity. And so there's this parallel now that we see between pharmacists who are questioning the medical decisions of prescribers of opioid medications and other controlled medications, and now laboratory uh, the toxicology directors at labs who are having to question the medical, medical necessity of the uh, urine drug testing orders in order to be able to justify billing. And that includes now you know, going in and asking uh, for details about the medical record. Uh, so this is something that requires you to have a good relationship with your, uh, your lab director, but also, uh, you have to be very careful to make sure that you're not getting anything of value, like a second opinion, for example, uh, that could be construed uh, by somebody eager to find wrongdoing as any sort of exchange of value that gets you uh, mixed up in anti-kickback matters. Uh, so uh, I apologize that the slides were way off. Uh, what I could do, because I've got updated slides, is uh, post them uh, online. Um, and if you're interested in getting them, I've got a stack of cards uh, and I'm also available on LinkedIn uh, if you want to request my slides. Uh, it's been a little bit difficult, um, but I tried to cover as much as possible and am available if you have any questions. We've got time now. Uh, is there anybody who has questions? You, sir, in the back. We've got a mic coming around. Your last point on your last slide, you didn't touch the last point. Do not copy and paste from previous notes. In this day of electronic medical records, um, where we are able to make a note very quickly and just maybe leave a small note at the very end. How else can we make it more what are, uh, unique? I think that's where you go to uh, looking at how you can have check boxes, you can have drop downs, you can have uh, options that you can customize uh, to each particular circumstance. Uh, you can have forms if you work with, uh, you know, for example, the uh, UDT lab on developing the forms to document uh, these sorts of decisions. Uh, but the cutting and pasting, if you look at uh, what goes on in cases and review of records, that's a, an immediate sign that there's not an individualized uh, decision in each particular case that makes it easier for someone who's scrutinizing your practice to say, look, this is a cut and paste job. Uh, these are all the same, but these uh, patients are all very different. Uh, this is not consistent with the standard of care. This is not medically necessary. Sir, in the striped shirt. If it has a different date, and if even one or two letters or uh, words are changed, that's not called cloning. You have to avoid cloning, but when you are seeing 30 patients or 25 patients to document every single thing, every single time differently, it's going to be a lot of work. Yeah, I think that uh, even if you document something as simple as a sentence about what you've discussed, those things can come in very handy at a time when you're being asked to uh, justify what your decision was. Enough for you to be able to remember at some point on a witness stand uh, what it was, who this was and what was unique about that person uh, would be a good starting point. You have your uh, number as DC. Do you help nationwide or is it just in DC? No, we, we uh, have a practice that uh, uh, provides services nationwide. If we ever were to go in courts where we don't have licensed attorneys, we work with local counsel. 
We um, do use a lot of copy-paste in our practice. I'm not, but what, for example, what I do if I see the patient, I saw the patient the previous month, when I go to see him the next month, I will copy my own assessment and what have you, but then I ad adjust that assessment according to what that visit for that day encompasses. Mm -hmm. And my treatment is not the same. So though the check boxes of whether you know you did your assessment is there click boxes and mm -hmm. it's going to be a click box even if I don't copy paste because I'm still clicking the same boxes. Right. Would that be still considered a cloning or copy paste or no. whatever? No. I mean it sounds like if you are taking that uh, effort to say what's different about the person's condition and what's different about the treatment uh, then that's a, a good start at having you know the proof of your individualized care. Yeah, because it does save me time as to not have to be clicking every single box but yet I'm making the note individual for that particular visit. Yeah. Okay. Sir, in the green shirt in the back. So basically what you're saying is uh, the canned templates, and you know a lot of practices have them. Uh, when you're speaking to a patient regarding alcohol, let's say in the urine drug screen, uh, you should add something obviously like, uh, for example, what they're drinking, how much they're drinking, those kind of is what you're talking about, correct? I would, I, would even, I would even do something a little bit more personal than that, right? If you can find out if the person has a you know, problem uh, with a particular uh, bar or you know, that, that there's a, a relationship that is uh, going to trigger your memory of the patient. I, I've seen so many circumstances where uh, if, you, if a provider is able to remember the individual's unique story when the time comes to speak with uh, a medical board investigator, for example, you're going to do a lot better than just, you know, what, what substances were uh, the problematic substances in, you know, that showed in the UDT or whatever. Okay, thanks. Uh, yes, uh, blue shirt, sir. So if if you know that there's a, I mean if you if you suspect diversion and you also fear overdose and uh, you want to show that you're addressing that risk, I think that uh, that would be you know you're trying to uh, uh, either contact uh, family if there's permission to do so or. Uh, uh, law enforcement uh, could be a consideration. I think that uh, you would want to look specifically at HIPAA. Uh, HIPAA, I think, does have the law enforcement uh, uh, um, uh, exception to it. But uh, I think that you, what you want to do from a legal perspective is recognize that you uh, saw the risk, you identified it, and you're acting upon it to fulfill your duty. Yes, sir, in the black shirt. You got a guy with the mic right here. Jump in next time. That's a good practical recommendation. In regards to in regards to prescri uh, prescriber prescription databases, the the state 
systems for monitoring prescriptions from prescribers for controlled substances. For example, in California, the cure system. Two-part question. Um, we're encouraged, and now it's becoming mandatory to check the cure system, for example. I'm assuming that's happening across the nation. Um, if we find reason to suspect that there's something going wrong on the basis of these reports by another provider, what, if any, are our legal obligations to report that provider to whatever kind of authority? And then I'm very curious, has there particularly when boards and states are requiring that there's mandatory checking, are we going to enter into an era? And, and, and are checking the database can be electronically tagged and monitored? Have there been cases where those uh, state reporting systems have been culled um, by regulatory authorities to target physicians? Yes. Uh, you know, the, the use of prescription uh, drug monitoring programs uh, is different uh, per state because different states have uh, varying levels of protections for both the healthcare providers and uh, the patients, but uh, fishing expeditions are common uh, overt violations of the law uh, as between the DEA and the state um, prescription drug program uh, directors uh, are common. And so I think that, you know, um, I personally am very concerned about issues related to privacy and then, you know, also uh, the uh, chilling effect of this uh, monitoring based on uh, data. Uh, related to the uh, obligation to report somebody else, I think your first obligation needs to be to protect the patient and protect yourself. And so if you think that what you see in the um, system uh, impacts any of those four items that I discussed, the legitimate medical need, you know, how you're practicing within the ordinary course of your professional conduct, uh, you know, the steps that you would need to take to prevent harm to that patient, uh, and then document, you, you need to make sure that you are doing what it takes, number one, to keep the patient safe. Uh, so that might mean a referral to a methadone clinic in, in some scenarios. It might mean calling that other prescriber in other scenarios and determining who's going to be primarily responsible for care uh, so that you're not, you know, conflicting and creating a risk. Uh, but you definitely, I think, uh, more than uh, feeling obligated to call law enforcement, you should protect yourself on, and the patient first. We've got time for just one more question. This gentleman back here has been okay. waiting patiently. All right. Quickly, uh, I've noticed an influx of insurance carriers are selecting their own labs that they want you to send uh, drug samples to. Uh, we had a case two weeks ago that one drug testing company would not test the patient's urine and refuse to send it back to us, who is that obligation to? We have to become members of all these different labs uh, because the insurance carriers are choosing their own lab that they, they're only going to pay for. Whose responsibility is that for us to receive that sample back and then get it to the appropriate lab? Um, I, di I didn't necessarily uh, understand the part about getting the sample back and getting it to the lab, but in terms of uh, your expectation to, to be able to get paid by a particular insurer, I don't know that there's a, a great deal of uh, recourse besides just uh, using the lab that they identify. Uh, did you want to maybe clarify that? Well, on the, on the patient's uh, insurance card, they'll have at the bottom like Quest Diagnostics or they'll have confirmations, whatever the case may be, and we send it to our normal lab. Uh, when they find that on that patient's insurance card that Quest is the only one that's going to pay for it, who's responsible for it? Is it the physician, our company, 
to go get the sample and get it to Quest for testing because they refused uh, to test it? I, I, can't, I wouldn't be able to answer that off the top of my head. I apologize. That's nothing I've ever given thought to before. Uh, uh, if you, I could uh, maybe give it some thought and let you know what hypothetically I might think of if you want to come get my card. Okay, thank you. All right, sorry about that. Thank you all. Uh, enjoy.